and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, Mark's here with some Bibles this morning in case you need one. And if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to keep that Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I love the song we just sang, It Is Well With My Soul, but the reason it is well with my soul is because of what God has done as described in this amazing text. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word that is to come, that as your word goes forth, it would not come back void. There is not a single soul in this room that does not need to hear this word preached to us. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that your word would come alive in our hearts. We praise you and thank you that for those of us in here that are children of yours, that you did a work in our heart. You made dead people come alive. What an amazing thing that is. And, Lord, there's no credit we can take in our salvation, not a single bit. Even our faith has been a gift given to us by you. So, Lord, we pray now that you'd bless the preaching the Deemer is going to bring of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, there is so much that I wanted to say to you today in regards to this text, and I'm not going to be able to cram it all in, but we are going to wrap up our look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 this week. We did part one last week. We will finish up this week, and then we'll move on. And I'll pass the baton on to, uh, to Steve, and he'll take care of the next half of chapter 2 next week. But I'm grateful that I have another Sunday to talk to you about this great and glorious and wonderful and exciting passage. Last week I suggested to you that my number one priority as a pastor is to be used by God to help, help others see how grand and glorious and wonderful and mighty, and beautiful, and valuable that God is. That Jesus is supremely valued, 
And he is to be treasured and honored above all things. Steve's primary job and my primary job is not to come up here week after week just to give you little moral lessons, little moral talks and tips for life, throw a few Bible verses at you, and then move on. The center of my ministry is not giving you a list of do's and don'ts. The center of my ministry is all about knowing and loving and valuing and and being satisfied by and adoring Jesus and helping you to do that. I want to help you to grow in those things as God is helping me to grow in those things. I'm not interested in, in getting you to simply be outwardly a moral person. Moralism minus Jesus equals failure. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. Jesus is saying, listen, if your affections really are for me, then they won't be for the things of this world. And as your affection and your love for Jesus increases, so does your hatred for sin and the desire to kill it in your life and keep Jesus' commandments. So I want to focus on loving Jesus more. And my goal last week and my goal this week is to help all of us to cultivate and further ignite our affections for Jesus. That's what it's all about. That's what I want to be all about. And part of cultivating our love for God, our passion for Him, our treasuring of Him, is to be reminded of the things that demonstrate Him to be great and glorious and worthy to be praised and adored. We we need to be constantly filling our minds with Jesus and allowing ourselves to be continuously dazzled and awed and amazed by God. One of our members here recently posted a great quote from John Owen on Facebook. said, Fill your affections with the cross of Christ, that there may be no room for sin. That's exactly what I've been trying to help us do last week, and what I'm trying to help us do this week. To have our affections filled with Jesus, the cross, and who Jesus is, and what he has done, and what he is doing for us, and and to to fill our hearts with those things so much to the point that our hearts are so full of Jesus that it's pushing out anything else that is competing with him for our affections. We have churches filled with people whose love has grown cold, And, and it has grown cold because we have taken God and Christianity, and our salvation for granted. And we have forgotten, or maybe never even quite realized, how desperate our situation was in the first place before we were saved, and we've forgotten what God has done for us, and we have forgotten the future promises of God. And we need help from the Holy Spirit to open our eyes this morning, to help us to to deeply grasp what God has done and what he is doing, and what he will do in our salvation. This is why Paul, in Ephesians 1, going one chapter back, he's not just trying to teach us things about God. He's praying in chapter 1 that we really are going to get this. He prays in Ephesians 1, starting at verse 17. He says, he's praying, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's what he's praying. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He wants us to more fully grasp what God has done. And part of that is being reminded of our condition before he saved us. And not just right here in this section that I'm preaching on this morning, but right after this section in Ephesians 2.11, where Steve is taking us next week, Paul says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And again in verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is calling us to remember these things, to never lose sight of what God has done. And why? Why do we need to remember? Why do we need to think about those things? I love the answer from John Piper. John Piper says, you cannot cleave to Christ with white-hot devotion if you don't remember and feel what your plight would be without him. I think he's right. And my prayer this morning is that if you are not cleaving to Christ with that white-hot devotion, if you feel like your love and your passion has grown cold, I am begging that God this day, this morning, that this would be the day that he would turn that around in your life and in your heart and your, that your affections would be stirred to new heights as we continue to meditate on Ephesians chapter 2. I pray that you won't be sitting around bored and disinterested this morning, but that you would leave this place excited about God and blown away by God and loving and appreciating him and clinging to him all the more. Last week we began to look at three things in this passage. Number one, what we were. Number two, what God did. And number three, why he did it. I won't spend a ton of time talking about the first point, what we were, as we covered that pretty thoroughly last week, but by way of review, or in case you weren't here last week, let's just briefly pick it up again for the next few minutes. Paul describes, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, what we were before we were saved. And it can be summed up in one word. Dead. We were dead before we were saved. Paul says right in the beginning here, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Think about the word dead for a moment. What are the characteristics of a corpse? Cold. Lifeless. Unfeeling unresponsive, oblivious and unresponsive to, to things around them, unresponsive to outside stimuli. What do dead people do? Nothing. What can a corpse do? Nothing. Corpse doesn't have the power to do anything. You can yell at a corpse. You can shake a corpse. You can hit that corpse with all your might and try to get a reaction. You're going to get nothing. A corpse is helpless. A corpse is powerless. Now transfer that concept of being dead into the spiritual realm. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? It means spiritually that you are cold. Spiritually you are lifeless. 
spiritually you are unfeeling, spiritually you are unresponsive and oblivious to stimuli. That was what you were before you came to Christ, dead in your sins. But you were not unresponsive to everything. You were responsive to sin. You were responsive to the devil. You were very much alive to those things. Look at it it again. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And then look at this in verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You have walking, you have following, you have living, you have a carrying out of desires. That seems to describe robust people, energetic people who are full of life. Yet Paul says, we were dead. Paul is describing spiritually dead people. And if we were not dead to sin, if we were not dead to the devil... The Bible describes us as slaves to the devil. We weren't dead to the devil. We were following him, following the prince of the power of the air. We're not dead to those things. What are we dead to, Paul? What are you talking about when you say we were dead? Spiritual death in the Bible means being dead to God. We are dead in the sense that we cannot see the glory of Christ. That, that we can't feel the glory of, of God, that we, can't, we, we don't grasp that. We're not responding to that. We're unresponsive to God and to Jesus and to the Bible. The Bible describes the heart of a spiritually dead person to be a heart of stone, cold and unsensitive and hardened to the things of God. In the book of Romans... Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. He's talking about all unbelievers. The minds of all unbelievers are hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mind of an unredeemed, unsaved person is so hostile to God that it does not only not submit to God, to God's law, Paul takes it a step further and says it cannot submit to God's law. He's saying that people outside of Christ, no matter what they might look like on the outside, and they might look very impressive on the outside, they are hostile to God. They do not submit to God. Indeed, they cannot submit to God more than a dead man is going to respond to you. He's not just talking about that picture that you might have in your head of really, really bad people of Satanists. No. Paul says to the believers at Ephesus, we all at one time were Satanists. We all were following the prince of the power of the air. We were all following after and living under the dominion of this dark and invisible power. Paul says we by nature were children of wrath. We are sinners who have broken the law of of a God of justice. And justice must be served. We deserve justice, judgment, wrath, eternal hell. 
So we need to really grasp how dreadful our situation was. If we don't get it here, we're not going to fully appreciate our salvation. We're not, God is not going to seem as great and glorious as he is if, if we think we were better off than we actually were. The act of God and salvation is not going to seem as big of a deal if we don't realize that we were dead. We were not drowning in the water in danger of death, splashing around and about to go under with God throwing us a life preserver. And if we just cling to that life preserver, Jesus Christ, then we will be saved. No, our plight was much worse than that. Worse than the drowning man. We were already drowned. We were dead, as Paul says. Our corpse was rotting on the ocean floor and dead people don't respond to life preservers that you throw out to them. You don't throw out a life preserver to a corpse. That's not going to help. The dead man is not going to respond to that. There's only one thing that's going to help a dead man. What is it? What is it? And Jesus doing what? Resurrection. That's what a dead man needs. Resurrection. Look at what, look, look at what God did. Talk about what we were. Let's focus on what God did. Verse 4. But God, and I love those two words, that changes everything. The, the first few verses of Ephesians 2 are so depressing, aren't they? So depressing. But then those two words, but God, turns everything around. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul says, we were dead. God made us alive. That's what salvation is. Salvation is a spiritual resurrection. And, and it's important to see who is responsible for that resurrection. Paul doesn't say that God, being rich in mercy, worked in cooperation with your own free will and choice to make you alive in Christ. That's not what the text says. If salvation was you drowning and God throwing you a rope, and you grabbing onto that rope and holding on for dear life, then you could say that you and God worked together to save you. God did his part, you did your part. Now God gets most of the credit, right? He gets 99% of the credit, but I got 1%. I did something because without my 1% contribution of grabbing that rope, I wouldn't have been saved, right? And, and that's what many people outside of the church say salvation is. That's what many people inside the church say that salvation is. Many churches and many preachers, I, I think, don't fully recognize, they haven't fully grasped what actually happened to them when they got saved. And for many years, I didn't fully get what happened to me when I got saved. For many years after I was saved, I thought I was that drowning man who grabbed onto the rope and I did something. I, th I think most people in the beginning, in fairness, most people in the beginning at least when they experience salvation don't fully recognize what happened to them. You don't have to have all your ducks in a row to be saved and have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed theologically to be saved. This fall will mark 20 years as a Christian, for me. The first half of my life, I was a walking dead man. 
I clearly was those first few verses of Ephesians 2. I was dead in my sins. I was living in rebellion against God. I was living in the passions of my flesh, as Paul says, carrying out the sinful desires of the body and the mind. And in the fall of 1991, a friend of mine uh, invited me to start attending a Wednesday night church group full of young people like me. And I would go to these meetings. The Bible would be preached. They would sing songs to God. They would fellowship. It was weird. It was weird. These people were not like the other people that I was hanging out with. These people were radically different. It was a different universe for me to be around these Christian people. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't hang out with church people. These people would have Bible studies on Friday nights. I partied on the weekends. I didn't go to Bible studies. And yet I remember, I had been attending these meetings for a few weeks, and something happened to me. I'm telling you, this, this was not my imagination. This is not made up. Something supernatural happened to me one evening. I started out that day like any other day, dead, cold, following the devil, by nature a child of wrath, my mind hostile to God, not submitting to God's law. That night I went to this meeting, and at one point people were, they started singing praises, praise songs to God, and something strange happened. I realized suddenly that they weren't the only ones singing. I was singing, and I was loving it. I was thinking, what's going on? <laughs> what, am, what am I doing? What's happening to me? There, there was some kind of transformation that was taking place in me. And, and for the very first time in 20 years, I began to feel something that I had never felt before. Deep hunger for God. 20 years, I had never felt spiritual hunger pangs. Now, I believe that in one sense, all who are outside of Christ, all men have some sort of, of, of yearning for God, some sort of sense that they need a God. But I'm talking about deep hunger pangs where I knew that the God of this book was the only one that could satisfy it, and I wanted it. Now, I had had a prior interest in God, before that day, years leading up to that day, I had prior interest in God. I sometimes read the Bible. I sometimes felt guilty about my sin. I sometimes prayed to God for help. I sometimes prayed that sinner's prayer. You know what I'm talking about? You see sometimes that on TV they say, pray this prayer. I, I did that sometimes. But there was no change in me. There was nothing. Nothing happened. There was a growing interest over time. There was a growing curiosity. I believe God was wooing me and drawing me in the months leading up to my salvation. But till that point, there was no real interchange or transformation. But this night was different. I felt those spiritual hunger pains. And I began to hunger and thirst for God like never before. And what was that? 
You know what that was? That was the very, what, what, what was happening to me that night, what I was feeling that night, what that was, that was the very first heartbeats of an ex-corpse. I was spiritually flatlined. You know those machines in the hospital, those heart monitors, and when there's just one flat line on the screen, that's not good. You don't want to see that. I was flatlined for 20 years. And that night, as I was singing, it was as if I was connected to a spiritual heart monitor, and all of a sudden, after 20 years of, of being flatlined, you got this blip, blip, blip. Very first heartbeats of a formerly dead man. You know, the evidence that you are dead, not dead, is that you feel something. That you respond to something. Someone calls and you answer. And I was called. And Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You know why? You know why no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him? Because, because that person is dead. Dead man's not coming to anyone under his own power. The Father has to do something. And the Father drew me to Jesus that night. And I was driving home that evening, I was marveling over the change that had come over me. And, and I just spontaneously blurted out this prayer as I was driving. It wasn't an eloquent prayer. It wasn't a sophisticated prayer. I didn't grow, grow up in church. I didn't know the right things to say, but I blurted out this prayer. I said, Lord, I pledge my allegiance to you. I surrender my life to you. This is what I want to do with my life. And that night, it was like a switch was thrown, and everything was changed for me in an instant. I saw everything differently. My spiritual vision had changed. I saw light and darkness, good and evil, God and the devil, heaven and hell. All of these realities became impressed on my spiritual vision. And all I wanted to do after that was to serve Jesus and tell other people about him. And for the first time, I had this, this deep hunger for God, and I wanted to serve God, and live for God, and love God, and learn more about God. What happened? How, how could I go from not following God, not loving God, not wanting to serve God, being hostile to God, like the Bible says? How do I go from that to doing a complete 180? Well, what happened was spiritual resurrection. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when Deemer was dead in his trespasses, made him alive with Christ. He made me alive. He dove to the bottom of the ocean. He dragged my sorry corpse to the surface. And he breathed life into me. And that flatlined heart started beating again. Now you need to realize that what happened to me when I was saved is exactly what happened to you. Now you may have a hard time pinpointing exactly when you were born again. You may have come to faith as a child. So you may not have the exact same catalog of rebellious activities as I have. But make no mistake, you weren't born saved. You weren't born a Christian. You weren't born neutral, for that matter. You were born with a sin nature. You were not in Christ. You were in Adam. And no matter what your story is, remember what Paul said. 
He talks about unsaving, unsaved people as sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The point is, is that no matter what the specifics are of your story, we all share this common background. We were all dead, and we needed resurrection. Now, what the scriptures teach on this, on salvation, runs counter to our human, man-centered instincts. Because we don't like to think that God is 100% responsible for our salvation. Surely we did something. Surely we accomplished something. Surely we weren't passive in getting saved. Now Paul anticipates this argument and he immediately nips it in the bud. He immediately kills it. A saying in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Heaven is not going to be filled with people with puffed out chest saying, God saved me, but I had a part to play too. I did something. I obeyed some rules. I took some steps. I lived a good life. I helped the poor. No one's going to be able to boast of anything in heaven. Your works don't save you. Paul says rather you are saved by grace. Grace is a free gift that God gives. You don't earn a gift. God's not obligated to save you. If God's obligated to do anything, it's to cast you into hell to pay for your sins forever. And he would be right to do so. There's no amount of works you can do to wash away the stain of sin that covers you. Nothing you do changes the fact that you're guilty. You broke God's law. There's a price that must be paid that's hanging over your head. We all know this deep down inside. That's why in our, our justice system, if you assassinate the president, you just can't tell the authorities, well, I really don't want to face the death penalty, so just let me do a bunch of good works instead. That's not going to fly. You can do all the works you want, and it doesn't change the fact that you're guilty. And there's still a price that needs to be paid for your crime. Do, do you see the futility and the foolishness of a salvation by works system found in every religion outside of Christianity? This is why we can't be saved by works. This is why... Jesus died on the cross for sinners to pay for their sins. Somebody's got to pay for your sin, your treason. It's either going to be you or Jesus. Justice has got to be served. It's either Jesus on the cross or it's you in hell. There's no third way. And if it's Jesus paying for your sins, then it's grace that is saving you. Your salvation is a gift that you did not and could never earn. You did absolutely nothing to achieve your salvation. Now, it could be asked, well, what about faith? Someone could argue and say, I, I agree with you that God saved me. I agree that grace is a free gift, I, but I don't agree there's nothing I did to be saved. Sure, I did something. I believed. The Bible says I need to believe to be saved, and I believed. The text doesn't just say we were saved by grace. It says we were saved by grace through faith. I did something. I believed. But Paul is quick to deal with that argument as well. 
Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now every part of this experience that Paul's talking about, the grace, the salvation, even the faith that we have is not of our own doing. It is a gift of God. Are you saying, Deemer, I can't even take credit for the faith that I exercised in Christ to be saved? That is exactly what I am saying. That's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, and it might rub you the wrong way. But let me try to help you through this by asking you a simple question. Why did you believe in the first place? Why did you believe, and not your lost friend or family member? What makes you different than them? Are you better than them? Why, why have you been able to believe, and they're unbelieving? Are you smarter than them? Are you more holy than them? What makes you different from the person who does not believe? And let me ask this another way. How could you, having a heart of stone, being dead, being hostile towards God, as the Bible says, how were you able to overcome all of that and believe? How could you raise yourself from the dead? How could you change your mind from hostility towards God to love of God? How could you, having a heart of stone, end up softening your own heart so that you might believe? For 20 years, my heart was a heart of stone. I didn't love God. I didn't want God. What changed? I've got friends today who knew me 20 years ago. They're still not believers. They're still not following God. Why am I believing? And they're not. What do I got that they don't, that they don't have? Bible tells us why we believe. Ezekiel 36 gives us a beautiful picture of what happens when God saves us. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 26. Listen to what God says. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The reason why you believed and not your lost friend or your family member is not because you're better than them or greater than them or smarter than them or holier than them. You had a heart of stone. You've got nothing to boast about. The reason why you believed, the reason why you still believe is that God gave you a new heart. He gave you, he, he did heart surgery. He, he took out your cold, dead, God-hating heart of stone, and he put something new in you. He gave you a heart of flesh that is alive and beating and warm and sensitive to the things of God. And the scripture right there in Ezekiel says that the result of this heart surgery is that you will walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey his rules. So you are walking with God today and you're exercising faith in God because you have a new heart. And you have a new heart because God gave you a new heart. God did it. You couldn't do it yourself, don't you see? Give glory to God today, right now, that he gave you a new heart so you could believe in the first place. 
You really don't want to take credit for the faith that you exercise, do you? Your salvation is not 99.9% God and 0.01% you. It's 100% God. 0% Deemer. Well, didn't I play some kind of part in my salvation? Yes, your part was being dead. God's part was raising you from the dead. There, you got your part. It's my part. I was dead. I was, that was the part that I played. I was the corpse on the floor. That was my role. God's role is to come in and breathe life. Raise me from the dead. So that I may walk in newness, newness of life. It is all God and not me. We as believers intuitively know this. We know this, guys. Why else do we pray for someone's salvation? When we pray for someone's salvation, what are we praying for them to do? We're praying that God would intervene and do something. When we pray, when we pray that way, we are admitting that unless God acts in a person's heart, that person can hear the gospel a thousand times and never believe. Listen, not only is this true and biblical, but it gives great glory to God. What glorifies God more? A salvation where you contribute something or a salvation where you contribute nothing and God did everything? Where even the faith you have is a result of God doing something special and miraculous in your heart so that you may see and believe. I want you to see I want you to see this amazing thing that God has done and perhaps get a greater glimpse of God's mighty act of saving you more than you've ever seen it before. And I pray that as God increases our vision of what God did and enlightens the eyes of our hearts, as Paul prays, that God would be demonstrated to be even greater and more wonderful and more mighty than we had previously perceived and would stir up all of our affections for him all the more. But if we were so wicked and so evil and we really did deserve death, then why did God save us? And what motivated God to do this? This is my, my, my third point now, why he did this. Did God look down on us and say, you know, these people here, they're so wonderful, I just can't help myself. I gotta, I gotta save them. Is that, is that what God did? Or did God look down and say, you know, there, there's some people that are just better than other people, so I, I, I'm going to go ahead and save them. Or did they look down and say, oh, there's some people that are trying really hard, they're doing the best they can, and so I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and save them. No. Isn't it interesting that when Paul tells us why God did this, he doesn't mention anything about you or me? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, did this incredible thing. So we have, for starters, mercy and love being given as motivating factors for why God saved you. God is a God of mercy. In fact, God says, or the Bible says, he is rich in mercy. I love that language. That kind of language suggests a liberality in his mercy, an overflow of his mercy. If, he, if he's rich in mercy, that means he's got a lot of it. And he's lavishly spending it upon us. While grace is getting something that you don't deserve, 
mercy is withholding something that we do deserve. We don't deserve salvation, but God in His grace gives it to us. We deserve hell, but God withholds that from us. That's mercy. Now, the other motivation is His love. Not just His love, Paul says, but His great love. You know, there are lots of false caricatures about God that exist. One is that God is cold and distant and unfeeling and uncaring towards humans. That he's like some sort of distant father. And and, and if he does have emotions towards us, then it's nothing but anger and wrath. And that's it. Yet that false view of God has more in common with the pagan gods that the Ephesians used to worship than it does with the God of the Bible. God didn't save us because he felt obligated to save us. He's not. We're by nature children of wrath. And God did not save us reluctantly or begrudgingly, like, ah, well, I guess I'll save them. Be the nice thing to do. I don't really want to do it, but I suppose I should. No. That's, that's not how the Bible pictures God in his saving acts. The Bible says he did this because of his great love with which he loved us. You know, so many people throw around the phrase, God loves you, that they throw it around so much that it's become trite. And we don't fully feel the weight and the magnitude of the fact that God loves you. And maybe one of the reasons why, why is, is because we have so trivialize love, and we really don't know what love is. Typically, when we talk about love, we talk about it in terms of things that are lovable. I love ice cream, especially with hot fudge on it. I love babies. I love sunrises. I love those who love me. I hate those who don't treat me right. I love those who deserve it. You mess with me, I'm not going to love you. That's how humans love. It's not how God loves. Matthew 5, Jesus, during his Sermon on the Mount, talks about how God loves and how it is different than how we sinners typically love. And he explains the love of God by calling us to do the most ridiculous, the most outrageous thing that we could do. He calls us to love our enemies. Matthew 5, 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus is saying we don't naturally love our enemies. We hate our enemies. We are not naturally kind towards our enemies. Yet if you really want to image your Father, Jesus is saying, if you want to be like your heavenly Father, do what your Father is doing. Love your enemies. Be perfect like your father is perfect. Are you saying, Demer, that God actually loves his enemies? For God so loved the world that he did what? 
He gave his only son. For who? For his enemies. While we were yet sinners, the scripture says, Christ died for us. He gave his son for dead people, for people who were hostile towards God, for people who hated God, for people who didn't want anything to do with God. He, he, he did that for you. He didn't love you because you were lovable. I'm not lovable. He didn't, he didn't love you because you were beautiful. I'm not beautiful. We weren't beautiful. We were imaging a twisted and perverted image of God. He didn't love you because you did something to earn that love. You couldn't. He loved you in spite of you. This kind of love that Ephesians is talking about is, is a covenant love. A covenant marriage love. And he is faithful to his bride. Jesus loves you as a groom should love his wife. Later on in Ephesians... Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Christ is the groom, church is the bride, and before the foundation of the earth, God had picked a bride out for his son. We saw that in Ephesians 1. And Jesus loves his bride. He loves you with a special, unbreakable covenant love. A love so faithful and so strong that he will never leave or forsake his bride regardless of how lovable or unlovable that bride is. Paul said that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When did he do this? When did he give himself up for his bride, for us? While we were dead in our trespasses and sins. While we were filthy and dirty and sinful, and unlovable, and even at war with God. Yet because of Jesus, because of his great, steadfast, faithfulness, and covenant love to his bride, he still gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, and cleanse her. We should be grateful that this love, this kind of love is unconditional in the sense that we can't earn it. Because if we can't do anything to earn it, then we can't do anything to lose it. The love of God is not rooted in our faithfulness. It's rooted in his faithfulness and the fact that he is a covenant keeper and he always keeps his promises. He never breaks his promises. So, for example, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He says, my sheep will never perish. None can snatch them out of my hand. We don't have to worry about Jesus divorcing his bride. Same love that motivated God to raise us up from the dead spiritually and save us in spite of ourselves is the same love that will keep us saved and remain with us despite our failings, despite our lapses back into sin. Now that God has chosen you and he has set his love upon you and has died for you and has made a covenant with you, that's it. Jesus doesn't forsake the one he has made covenant with. But beyond his great love and mercy towards us, God also saved us for other reasons. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us 
in Christ Jesus. God is saving us to put his mercy and his grace and his kindness on display. God's number one motivation in all that he does is to glorify himself, to put himself on display so that his people may marvel in it, love it, and enjoy it, and so that his enemies may be ashamed, humiliated, and overthrown by it. God is glorified in pouring out wrath and justice on sinners, and God is also glorified in showing kindness to them and saving them. And for those of us who are being saved, we have the privilege, Paul says, of being tokens of this immeasurable riches of his grace for all of eternity. God God can never be accused of not being merciful. He saves the most wretched and despicable of sinners. I know he did it for me. He takes dead people and he brings them to life. He takes people who were slaves to the prince of the power of the air and he makes them adopted children of God with the Prince of Peace as their elder brother. He takes people who deserve wrath and he lavishes upon them mercy. We will never fully realize the kindness of God and the riches of his grace. We do not grasp our condition before Christ. And then finally in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are not saved by works, but you are saved for good works. There are things that before you were born, God had planned out for you to do. Good works. Things that glorify God. The Evans family just came home from the Ukraine with their beautiful adopted daughter, Vera. You think the Evans planned that? You think that was something they dreamt up? Are we going to give them credit for that? No, God prepared this beforehand. Before John and Amy were even born, that they would do this beautiful and God-exalting thing. God has all those works, these works laid out and planned out for you to do, Paul says. We are his workmanship, Paul says in verse 10. You are God's workmanship. Focus on what I'm about to say here, because this is mind-blowing. You know what the Greek word for workmanship is? Poema. You know what English word we get from poema? Poem. You are God's workmanship. You are God's poem. God's work of art. As God saves you and raises you from the dead and breathes new life into you, he begins to transform you to make you more and more like Jesus. God didn't just save you to get you out of hell and to get you into heaven. God saved you. Christ Christ gave himself up for you, his bride, that he might sanctify you. That he might take something that was ugly and unlovable and dirty and make you into a poem. And to a beautiful work of art. Not so that you will be made much of. Not for the purpose of the world looking at Deemer and saying, wow, that guy's really something else. Look at what he's become. No, no, no. It's not about me. It's about him and the work that he's doing. There's a great story uh, that um, John Stott tells. A story about one of his Cambridge professors who was honored on his retirement by the board and faculty of his college. He was honored by, with, a, with a beautiful portrait that had been done in his likeness so that it, that, that it would be 
hung in the hall where he, he had taught for most of his life. And, and, and when, and when um, they were giving words of thanks and appreciation at the unveiling of this beautiful portrait, uh, the man who was giving the speech said, in the future, when people see this painting, they will ask the question not, who is that man? But they will ask, who painted that portrait? It, it was an expression of his appreciation for the artistic skill of the portrait maker. He had done such a wonderful job that, that it would draw attention to himself, the maker of the portrait. That's exactly what God is doing in you. God is creating you. He is doing a beautiful work in you with the end goal so that when people will not say, who's that guy or who's that girl, because they're so great, but rather they'll say, who is this God who does such great things in them? You are the display of his workmanship. You may have never thought of yourself as a beautiful piece of art. You may have committed lots of sins in the past. There may be things that you've done that have haunted you, things you are ashamed of, things that other people in this room knew. You'd cower in the corner and feel this tall. Things in your past that make you feel dirty and ugly. But if you belong to God, I promise you that God is making something beautiful out of you. God is a master artist. And what he does in you will be a lovely and glorious display of his craftsmanship for all of eternity. And why will you be so beautiful? I'm closing up right now. Why will you be so beautiful? <clears throat> because God has predestined you, the scripture says, to be conformed to the image of his son. You think Jesus is beautiful? You think Jesus is lovely? God is working in you, even now, to make you image his beauty and his holiness and his love more and more. And that beautiful poem, that beautiful work of art that he's creating in you will be perfected in the next age. And we will all be in awe of the artist who has done this great and glorious thing in you. You see how great God is? You see how wonderful and marvelous he is? Are you getting a, a better grasp this morning, a better picture this morning of how amazing and glorious he is? Are the eyes of your heart being enlightened this morning as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1? How I hope so. How I hope so. I pray that you are not just sitting there bored and wondering when you can go home for lunch. Think about God! Be awestruck by this great act that he has done in saving you. Meditate on it. Know more fully what your condition was like before without him. Know what he did. Know why he did it. And be amazed. And fall more in love with this incredible, great God. Lots of potential application for this passage and I'm not going to hit them all today, and I'm not even going to spend five minutes on them all, but just a couple of quick things to think about. If, the, if this passage is true, this should give us more boldness in preaching the gospel. It should give us more boldness in preaching the gospel because God raises dead people to life. 
and we, and we recognize, as we absorb these truths, we recognize that at the end of the day, it's not about our skill and our ability to preach the gospel. You ever shared Christ with someone, and you're kicking yourself afterwards because you felt like you did a lousy gospel presentation? I feel like that all the time. And, and I go home, I'm like, I should have said that. That guy's going to go to hell now because I, I said the wrong thing. And yet we're reminded in this passage that salvation is a work of God. It's not dependent on my eloquence. It's not dependent on my intelligence. All I need to do is be faithful and pr- proclaim the gospel and pray. Pray that God will use that gospel message to breathe life into that dead person. Another application is that this should give us hope for the most wretched of sinners. Hope for the most wretched of sinners. Do you know people who they are so hardened to the gospel, you're like, that person is never going to come to Christ. You got people like that in your life? You got family members, friends who are just so hardened, and you've just pretty much given up on them. I have shared Christ with them 150 times. What's the point? They're never going to get saved. And yet, if God is a God who raises dead spirits to life, That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises spiritually dead people to life. And there is hope for even the most hardened sinner. Because God can overcome that. God can overcome that. I think also this passage gives us assurance that God will finish his work in you. He won't abandon you. God, one of the reasons why God has saved you is so that you will be a display of the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness for all of eternity. That's that's one of his purposes in salvation. He's not going to let you go and ruin that purpose. Another application is remember that God is working something beautiful in you. You are his poem, his work of art, his workmanship destined to glorify him. Maybe sometimes you get discouraged because you have failed in X area for the one millionth time. And you get discouraged and you wonder if you're ever going to be everything that God wants you to be. And you will. You are his workmanship. He will perfect that portrait that he is working on. He who has begun a good work in you, the scripture says in Philippians, will finish it. He'll complete it. That's a promise. I think the biggest application is that this should stir our hearts to love him even more. This salvation is so big. It is so glorious that God actually overcame this heart of stone. He took it out and he put in a beating, living, warm, sensitive heart of flesh So now I see him correctly and I love him. I pray that you let the truths of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 sink deep into your heart. You'll never take your salvation for granted. You will love him more. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and prepare our hearts to respond to the word that has just gone forth. Father, again, I pray. Well, I pray that you would help us to live out what John Owen challenged us to do. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ that there may be no room for sin. 
fill our hearts with affection for God. Help us to love you more. You have saved us, but there's so much more work to be done. And thank you that you will finish that work that you have begun. That we are your workmanship. Father, I pray this morning that you would raise dead spirits to life. If there's anyone in here that has not received salvation, no amount of pleading or begging or crying on my part can save anybody. Only you can do that. Only Jesus saves. Only you save. You have the power to raise dead people. If there's anyone in here that hasn't received Christ as Lord and Savior, has not bowed the knee to him, I pray this morning that you would overcome and you would take that heart of stone and that you would turn it into a heart of flesh. And Father, I pray for others here that do belong to you. I pray that you would stir up a greater passion and a greater zeal and a greater desire for you. That they would cling to you with white-hot devotion. Loving you like they have never loved you before. Help us with that, God. Help us to love you more. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
and for its truth and for the effect it has on the hearts of his people. Have a seat, if you would. Uh, I'll just make a couple of announcements. Um, it's not in your, first of all, most of the announcements are in your bulletin here, so you can always refer to that for different things we have going on. For example, the, the children's home collection is in here as well as some other things. Um, but one thing that's not in there is that we are in need of some rewind teachers for the fall. And if you feel the Lord's been leading you to teach, uh, to be involved in, in the lives of the children of our church, please let me know because we are going to be needing some more rewind teachers. So just at the least be praying for that. Just be praying that the Lord would uh, would open up uh, hearts for people to be willing to, to step into those positions and help us with, with rewind. And then there's other areas as well that we're going to be needing help as fall rolls around. We're going to be needing more greeters and some help in the nursery area. So just be praying about those things. And be asking God to show you any areas that he may want, want you to be involved. Um, another thing that's not in your announcements here that I'm going to ask for, just on a, from a very personal perspective, is that Noah and I are going on a mission trip, on a short-term mission trip in about a month to uh, Honduras. And we need to collect some school supplies for the children we're ministering to there. Uh, we're going to be ministering, Noah and I specifically are on a team that's going to be ministering to some impoverished children there in Honduras. And we need to collect some school supplies for them. And so just giving you a heads up, I'm going to be sending out a list uh, later today via email. And um, so if you guys have the the means to be able to help us with that, we'd like to just collect as much school supplies as we can to take with us down to Honduras in a month. Uh, And then the other thing I really want to mention again to you guys, and we're pushing this hard for a reason, is um, the Art of Marriage Conference is coming up at the end of this month. Uh, by all means, Deemer and I felt this is something very, very much needed in our church at this time. And um, so please pray about coming to this Art of Marriage Conference if, if you can make it. And also, um, if you have a friend or family or someone you know who really could use this conference, please bring them as well. And then we're going to try to do it again in the fall for the community, really promote it to the community at large. Because marriages, not just in the church, but marriages in general, are under attack. And this conference, we believe after praying over it and really asking the Lord to lead us in regards to how we are to do this, we really believe this is going to be a great, great conference. So we've been showing you little video clips of it each week, so we're going to do the same thing again today. This video clip accompanies last week's video clip, which was some teaching on the subject of anger. And this video clip today is is an actual couple that has gone through some challenges and struggles. And so I'm going to show you this clip, and then we'll pray and dismiss. very few people who knew what really went on inside of our home. Whenever we got in our discussions, I I felt like I couldn't control the emotion that was going on inside of me. I was a button pusher, and I knew what buttons to push. My anger would just flare out of control, and it would turn into an, an explosion. From friendly to horrible in a matter of seconds. I think he felt like things were swirling. I could out-talk him, I could 
I could take the entire situation, no matter what I had done in it, it could be about Hans. It could be his fault. We were in an argument, and I grabbed her as hard as I could, and I threw her down on the bed. I had this little bit of justification that because I didn't actually physically lay a fist on her and uh, blacken a part of her body, that it really wasn't as bad as what she was saying it was. I was really afraid at that point because we were married and we had a baby and things were not getting better. So while he was gone for a week, I had become very involved in an affair. I pulled up in the driveway and uh, Star met me um, there with her bags packed with our then two-year-old daughter, Kylie. And um, we went through the exchange of, what are you doing? And she says, I'm leaving. I'm like, why? And she's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> why? I expected my parents to just receive me with, you know, loving arms. And when I got to, uh, to their house and explained to them what was going on, they said, if you're going to live in our house, um, you need to go to marriage counseling. I'd started out that counseling session um, ranting and raving about how Star was doing this wrong and doing that wrong. I started throwing God's word in there and that, you know, she's not doing this, she's not respecting me. I mean, the Bible says that I deserve to be respected, right? He took a long pause and he started to read Philippians 2 to me. Jesus came to this earth and deserved everything. He deserved for people to bow down at his feet. He deserved for all the riches in the world. And he had a biblical right to all those things. And yet he chose to take the nature of a servant. And he chose to surrender those rights to God the Father. And as I looked at my life and I looked at Jesus' life, and I saw the, the, <laughs> the huge gap in between the two, um, the lights came on for me. I had accepted Jesus for my forgiveness of my past sins so that I could spend eternity with him forever. But I was missing the gospel of the now. And I was missing the gospel and its effect and its impact on me today. And from that point on, my anger was um, in a totally different perspective. He was changing. And I didn't like that because everyone either knew or suspected that they knew what I was doing. And he was becoming this great guy. And no one really knew the ins and outs of why I left. We would fight, and I would push all the same buttons, and he did not respond the way that I was used to him responding. I mean, you have to understand, my life was radically transformed. I remember being very drawn to the man that he was becoming, but now the relationship was dead. I decided I was going to go to counseling. Two to three sessions, and then be done. That way I can say that I tried and it just didn't work. And so... I was going to pursue a divorce. I vented everything to him about why there was just no way that we were going to make it. And he just listened. And then he looked at me in the eye very intently and said, Do you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? And I said, Yes, I believe that. He said, You think that God can take a dead man and raise him to life to save you? You don't think he can heal your marriage. And so, I turn to God this much. It takes 100% uh, dependency on Christ in, in the moment, in the now. And it looks like constant confession and repentance for me. 
a light that had been shut off came on and I wondered, what if God could do it? I believe this conference is not only filled with practical principles to help our marriages, I believe it's filled with the gospel. And um, go out there and look at the sign-up sheet. And if your name's not on it, put it on it. And if someone else in this church's name is not on it, you give them a phone call and you say, I want you to come to this conference with my family. We're going to be there. You come with us. Please. There are people in our church that need to turn to God that much for him to do the miracles he did in that real couple's life right now. And so, I'm begging you guys, please, take this serious. This isn't just something we're doing. Oh, let's just do a marriage conference. That's something to fill our calendar with. If our church wasn't in desperate need of this right now, we would not even be doing it. Because we don't need a bunch of programs. We need the gospel to be affecting lives for change, for the glory of God. And this is simply a tool that God wants to use in our church. So please, please take this serious. Invite some friends. Let's see what God can do through this conference. And he gets all the glory for it. Let's close with prayer. Let's pray to the God and praise the God who does raise dead men to life. Heavenly Father, praise be to your holy name. Your word was preached today. Praise be to your holy name that we sang songs of truth to you today. Praise be to your holy name that you do raise dead men. And Father, it should be a, 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 a major shock to our system when we consider our depravity. And Lord, that's just what you were just hammering me with this morning. And as I think about my own brother who's lost, there is a part of me that wants to say, I got it right. And Tim didn't. And some little prideful angle of mine that wants to say, huh, he was the bad apple, I was the good. Oh, but God, you reminded me this morning that I am no better than him. And oh, what pride I have to consider myself a good apple. I was dead. Dead and decaying, a corpse on the bottom of the ocean. When your saving hand reached down and pulled me up and breathed life into me. Life I didn't deserve. So God, help us, Lord, to not be prideful Christians. But instead, be God-glorifying, God-magnifying believers who give you all the credit. And therefore are bold in our willingness to share the gospel with others. Because we know it's not about us. It's all about you. Lord, I pray for this conference, Lord, that you would send more people to this marriage conference. Lord, I pray that you'd fill up that list of names. And Lord, I pray that you'd get all the credit in the miracles you're going to do through that conference. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.